we are jumping back to our project, which we are in the midst of, uh, and that is kind of going through the New Testament, looking at books, taking one or, one or more a week. And today, obviously, we've, we've got John as the fourth gospel still sitting out there, but I wanted to jump to, to Acts. We did Luke two weeks ago. And as I mentioned, it, Luke Acts is a, is a two-part story written by Luke. And I did, I did mention, and if you remember, that together they actually comprise more than any other writer in the New Testament. It's almost a third of the New Testament is made up by those two books in terms of the number of words written, spending time talking about Luke and what he had to tell us and the story that he wanted to convey. The church has, is an important thing. So today we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to read the scripture. We're going to talk a little bit about it. And then I, then I want to come back after we talk about scripture and talk about Acts as a book and, and what God is doing through the book, what Luke is trying to tell us or give you sort of the, like, as I've said before, sort of that framework or that, that, uh, the guidelines that you can have in the back of your head as you're reading through the story to think about sort of the larger picture and not get lost in the, the many winding, twisting, crazy stories that exist in Acts. So today we're reading from chapter 2. It's verses 1 through 6. Uh, this is the moment of Pentecost, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, but hopefully today we can kind of crack this open a little bit, and hopefully it takes on some new meaning for you. It reads, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native tongue, native language, excuse me, of each. It goes on from there, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it says from there, but we're going to, we're going to stay in these first six verses today. The first detail that Luke gives us is what? Very first thing he tells us. The day, right? So it is the day of what? Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Yeah, so we know it. Ricky's right. We know it, obviously, from this story. It's the day when the Holy Spirit comes up. But Pentecost is a thing already in Judaism, right? There's a, we're, there's a festival. It's the second of the three large festivals within Judaism. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. So just as Passover was a, probably the biggest festival within Judaism, and it was a Jerusalem would have been packed with people from all over the world, Jews that were com coming on a pilgrimage for that feast. 50 days later, there's another one, and it is known as Pentecost because it's 50 days later, right? So Pente being five, it's 50 days later. It's also known as the Festival of Weeks. And so it's the second national festival. It's a party. When you read about tithing in the Old Testament, like proportion of the tithe goes towards these festivals. So you would send your grain and your your produce and everything, you know, animals, the fattened lambs or calves or whatever, though all those things would be sent to Jerusalem for the purpose of some of these festivals. That was a portion of what the, the Old Testament title was, was meant for. And so this was the second of those. It was the Festival of Weeks had become known and traditionally, we don't know for certain, but it, it at this point was understood as the, the moment when Moses ascends the hill, the Mount Sinai, and gets the law. So that, that is the festival that's going on at, when this happens. That's why there's so many people. That's why when, when the Spirit comes and we speak all these languages, there's everybody there that has all of these diverse languages. It's because they've come from their faraway places and have descended upon Jerusalem for the second of these three uh, large feasts. We're told then after that, obviously it is Pentecost. It says that they were all together. All here is likely, Luke is trying to tell us, that it's more than just the twelve. 
So all of the ones who had sort of believed, who had heard uh, Jesus after he resurrected, had sort of gathered around him in the, in the moments of the resurrection that Jesus had told to go wait, are gathered doing that very thing. They're waiting. They're waiting for the next thing that God wants to do, right? Um, and that, of course, recalls the end, the end of Luke, of course, when, when Jesus gives them that, that instruction. In verse 2, we get into sort of the description of what happens, right? And what are we told? What's the first description of, of what happens in this moment when they're all gathered? Some people think that they're in the upper room. That's possible. There are probably more people that can cram in there. So we don't know exactly where they are, but they're all together somewhere. What happens? There's a violent wind, right? So here's the question. Is there a violent wind? What do the words say? There's a sound, right? And it sounds like the rushing of a violent wind. Here again, it's important to pay attention to what the words actually say. Remember, we talked our first week of this project, we dealt with Revelation. We kind of took the easy one first, remember? And we talked about how uh, in Revelation, there, there are lots of words like and as, there's metaphor and simile, there's literary language, imagery that is used in order to describe what something is like. Because when we're dealing with God that is completely unlike us, it gets difficult to describe what's going on. And so we see the writers of the New Testament all over the place, Paul being one of them, talking about what things are like, right? Grasping for language to try to explain the thing that they're experiencing. And this seems to be one of those places. And so we hear a sound like the rush of a violent wind, right? So it's unlikely that they're standing in this room and there's this tornado that comes through the room and their hair's blowing everywhere. And they're, you know, like, that's not the, actually the picture of, that we're being given. They're in a room and there's this sound that comes into the room that sounds like a, a rushing violent wind. So if you've heard uh, the soundtracks or you watched like the movie Twister when it came out, and it's really like really violent wind. Our house, it's an old house, and when the wind blows real hard, you get like the, the squeals and the whistles through the doors. It's, it's that sort of moment when these, these sounds, as the spirit comes in, we're told that there's the sound that is this tremendous sound like that, okay? And then what, else, what happens after that? Into verse three. There are tongues of fire. Again, read the language. Seemed like, right? And here we're going to get into a couple different translations. This one that we have today, this is the NRSV, says divided tongues as, as of fire appeared among them. So that word as is one of the, if you go back to seventh, eighth grade English, right? Like and as are simile language. I'm going to read to you a couple other translations uh, here. Divided tongues as fire is the one that we're using today. Uh, another one says tongues of, tongues of fire that separated. So that one seems to imply they actually are fire. The King James, if you're familiar with that one, talks about cloven tongues as of fire. And then cloven, here, here is the, the imagery that gets translated here is almost like a snake's, a forked tongue. And the word here for divided carries with it that connotation according to some translators. I'm not so convinced as we go in. And we're not, again, we're not going to parse all the, the Greek today. But that word used by Luke frequently in, in his gospel and in the story of Acts has more to do with distribution than it does the separating, like a splitting of like a split tongue. But the King James chose to use that translation. Another one says, what looked like fiery tongues. Uh, another says, tongues resembling fire. Then the message, actually, I, I really like this one. It's certainly not literal, but it says, then like a wildfire, which uh, again, recognizes that this is language tried to explain what's going on. You, you imagine a wildfire just kind of like roaring through, a, through a, a field or a forest. It just kind of like consumes everything in its path. I think that's true, but it's certainly not a literal translation, right? It says, another one says, then they saw something that looked like fire in the shape of tongues. Uh, and then NASB, which is probably the most 
literal, it actually gets really difficult to read at points because they try to be as much word for word. And that, if you know much about languages, you can't translate word for word. It just sounds jilted and awkward. But here they say, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves. And the way the Greek works uh, and, and the tenses and the things, that is probably the most literal. The, the verb for distributing is, is a reflexive verb. So it's something that it's doing itself or something that's being done to it. And it's, so it's distributing. I think that's the more accurate reading, but as you can see from those translations, people disagree. And I, I do want to interject one point here, and, and my seminary professors uh, over the years have always said, you need to understand that translation is always interpretation, right? And so if you go and read, like I said, you read that Greek and you read the literal Greek words, it doesn't always make sense in English. And so the, gr the groups of scholars who get together and make translations are making interpretive uh, choices. And so that's one of the reasons it's, it's good to have a stack of Bibles that are different translations because the vast majority of scripture matches, right? A lot of it's the same and means the same thing. But there are places where things can get interpreted and they get a little dicey and, and we get scripture like this. So depending on what tradition you've come from, what your background is, you probably lean towards liking one of those translations more than the other. So I just want to explain to you, you know, and draw out the fact that we do have metaphoric language here. And the question is, how do you take it? Well, you choose, right? To some extent, pray about it, think about it. But at the end, end of the day, it doesn't matter really for the point of the story, which is what we're going to get into here in a minute. The other thing I want to point out is this, the, these two images. There's a reason that as Luke is telling the story, he picks it's like a wind and it's like fire. What do you know about wind and fire? Sorry? Wind feeds fire. That's, that's certainly true. They don't mix well. They're dangerous when they mix, right? That's kind of goes to Daniel's point. Gwen, you have something? They're both powerful. Okay. That's all true. All of that's true. And so the imagery is, is obviously strong imagery. That, that, that whatever's, Donna, you just said something. You can't really control it. And, and all of that's true and important for understanding what's going on here. Like this movement of God is uncontrollable. This is not something that the, the men and women in this room were praying for and asking for, right? They're waiting for God. This is not what they asked for, right? And this is, they, I don't think they probably never even thought to ask for this, right? But this is something that God has decided to take upon himself to do to them. But the other important thing about wind and fire is think about when Moses is in the wilderness and God needs to come, he hears the cry of his people in Israel. How does he come to, to Moses? In a burning bush through fire. When we get past the, the plagues and Pharaoh has let them go, they come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. How does it part? A rushing mighty wind. As they go through the Red Sea and they go into their wandering, they're led by God. How are they led by God? A pillar by fire by night and a cloud by day. Wind, again, wind and fire, right? Wind and fire is the imagery of what we call theophany, which is a bit fancy word for the presence or the coming of God. And so as Luke is telling his story and people are reflecting upon what happened that day, they naturally gravitate towards the language that they know represents and means the coming of God, okay? And so did God come in that way? I think likely, but it's also true that he comes in that way because that's the way he has always come through sort of wind and fire, has always been a way that the scriptures tell us that God comes to his people. And then we get into verse four, right? And we're told that all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is not just some special select. It is not just the 12. It is everyone that is present is graced with the Holy Spirit in this moment. And what happens? The wild thing happens. <laughs> what starts to happen? I'm sorry? 
they, they begin to speak in different tongues. Okay, here, and it goes on, and the point is supported as we go forth as it talks about the languages and the areas which the people were from who hear these people, these people speaking. It's important to note that these are known languages. So we have a tendency to take this and then take some other things that Paul says about speaking tongues, and we just kind of think they're all the same thing. Well, Paul, if you remember Paul's instruction, he talks about speaking in tongues, and uh, if you do that, make sure there's an interpreter so that, you, that everybody can understand what's going on. That, that sort of speaking tongues is what you would experience more in the Pentecostal charismatic movement of the, of the American church. Uh, this language that is sort of obscure, it's a spirit language, something that's compelled by God, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. And what Paul is, at, is instructing us is kind of, if you don't have somebody there to interpret that for the, the group of the people, hang on to it, right? Because it need, that's given for the purpose of the church, and so the church needs to be able to understand it. But the implication there is that tongue, that type of tongue, is not understandable, right? This here is something different. This is the Spirit coming, allowing equipping the people in this room to speak known languages, right? And the people that have gathered for this feast recognize their own language, right? So this is intelligible. This is something that is known. This isn't, this isn't sort of a spirit language that is foreign to mankind, all right? So it's a different type of tongue. And, and, and that's, it's important, I think, in broader context. We won't go into it beyond that point today. But it's also important, as I said earlier, that this is God with, through, and by his Spirit compelling this. I said that this is not something that the, the disciples and the early believers sat around and prayed for, right? It wasn't like, dear God, please let us speak the language of everybody that's coming this week so we can talk to them. Like, they're waiting to see what God is going to do, and God comes and does this. This is what God chooses to do. I'm going to ask in a minute, why? Why is this what God does? But one thing it also does in terms of sort of a literary parallel is it calls, back, calls us back to the opening of Luke if you know the early stories of Luke, the Spirit comes to Mary and tells her she's going to have this son. And do you remember what Mary does in Luke? She sings a song, right? It's called the Magnificat. So the Spirit comes to Mary, and in response, there's this beautiful song. And then the Spirit comes to Zechariah in the next chapter to tell him about John the Baptist. Remember, if you remember the story, Zechariah doesn't believe, and his tongue gets clasped down and he can't talk. But then the moment that he begins to be able to talk again, the Spirit comes to him and compels him to prophesy. And so Luke starts his gospel this way, with the Spirit coming upon Mary and Zechariah and compelling, in those cases, a prophecy and a song. Here, it's a similar situation in which those that are waiting are visited by the Spirit, and that Spirit compels the speaking in, in languages, right? It, it is, is a forced action, is a forced, an action brought about um, which then sets the stage for the entire rest of the book. Both of, both of them function in that way, all right? And I would also say that, and draw your attention to the fact that this, in the beginning of Acts, is the fulfillment of the beginning of Luke, in that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist spoke of, right? You remember when, when John the Baptist is in the wilderness talking about the coming, the one to come after him, he says, I'll baptize with water, he will baptize with the Spirit, well, here it is. It didn't happen in the gospel. Jesus certainly does miraculous things. He dies, he's resurrected, like salvation, right? The, the project has started, but it's in Acts that the, the promise of the baptism of the Spirit happens, and, and this is the beginning of that. 
Then into verse five, uh, we get reiterated this point about devout Jews from every nation under heaven uh, that were living. And so some of them have, have certainly moved back. Remember, we talked, we talked before about the diaspora and the dispersion over the periods of foreign powers that conquered Israel. Scat- people scattered, they fled, they left. And so there are Jews living all over the Roman Empire, all over the world, even still in Babylon from the Babylonian exile um, in what is known as the diaspora or the dispersion. And they are pilgrim- there's a pilgrimage back. And so that's where they're coming from. There are devout Jews that live in other lands that come back, but they, there's also others that have moved back and they live there permanently. They've come back since things have calmed down. If you can say they calmed down on the Roman Empire, there's a certain known quality that allows you to come back and sort of live with some semblance of peace under the Roman Empire. And so some of them have come back and we're told that they have come from every nation. Again, that's the point that they come from all of these other nations and that they are this, at the sound, which of course this is the sound of them speaking the languages, not the earlier sound of the wind, but we're told that they're, they're bewildered. And why are they bewildered? Yeah, they hear it. They hear it in their own language. And we're going to talk about that for just a minute. But I will make the larger point that this moment, this is the moment when the Great Commission, which Matthew told us about, the expansion of the gospel through all nations, the blessing of all nations that God promised to Abraham, this is the moment where that really seeds, takes, takes root, and is made possible because of language. We often just breeze right through this scripture and don't even stop to think about what language matters. What is going on here? This is the beginning of God breaking open his community. I said, this is, this is the point where it really gets, the, the worldwide project gets launched. This is, as we said, God taking hold of these men and women. He's taking control of their tongues, their voice, their minds, their bodies, their souls, and compelling them to do something for his kingdom. There has, I love this phrase, there of course, has been, God has always stated and, and said that this is what was his plan, right? To bless the entire world. That's always been part of the promised Israel. There's a writer, and we're going to read one of his quotes later, uh, William James Jenkins, or Jennings, I'm sorry. Uh, but he talks about this moment as the fulfillment of the divine fantasy. Uh, I, just, I love that language, right? This is, this is the dream. This is the dream given by God. This is the dream that has been ha- possessed by God. This is, this is the thing that God has been dreaming and planning about since the dawn of mankind, certainly since the creation of Israel. This is the moment when God comes and joins his people again. We've talked before about Second Temple Judaism and the, the way in which Israel understood themselves still to be in exile, even after returning from Babylon, because God had never come to the temple. We've talked about the Shekinah glory that descends upon the tabernacle, and then after Solomon consecrates the first temple, descends upon the temple. That's never happened. Wind and fire in this moment is that Shekinah glory that is God descending upon his people. This is the moment when exile ends. This is the moment when the divine fantasy, the fantasy about God, but also the fantasy of God, the dream of God, living again with his people, coming to join with his people. This is the moment when that, takes, that happens, right? Um, this is God joining in. And so the question that I've alluded to already and that we have to ask is, why in this way, right? Let's stop for a moment. Let's not blow past this. A lot of times we read this like, oh, it's a great miracle. Like, let's speak in tongues, right? And then we just go right on into Peter's response um, which if you know this story in a minute, they're going to all accuse these people of being drunk, right? And then Peter stands up in response and gives this sort of amazing uh, speech or sermon. 
Um, but let's, we're not even gonna go there today. We're gonna stop and we're gonna ask, why, why this one, right? Why is this the how of the Spirit that comes? Why is this what the Spirit does? Why does the Spirit fill people and cause them to speak in languages? Language, we all, for the most part, have grown up in English-speaking areas. I, know, I can see a couple of faces that I know have been to foreign countries where they speak other languages, but I don't know how many of, how many, for how many of us is that our experience? Have, we, have, you, have you gone where they speak other languages? Okay, so a, hand, a handful, and a lot of you have, and some people, foreign mission trips, for example, uh, that, that happens. So most of us, though, have grown up in English-speaking worlds, right? Maybe you took a language in high school, uh, but you've not been in a position where you don't understand what's going on, right? You're not in a culture where they're speaking words that you don't understand, they sound foreign, you are put off a little bit, uh, you, you can't connect, right? And that's really sort of the fundamental point is, how do you connect with someone who you don't speak a language? Language is the fundamental connecting thread of a people, right? If you can't speak to someone, you can't tell them about your day, you can't ask them how they're doing, you can't find out about their needs, you can't, certainly can't speak the gospel, right? But you can't do anything. You can sit and you can nod and maybe you can draw pictures and point. And that may, you know, linguists tell us that may have been the way that language started, but we certainly now have language that enables us to do things together and be a people. You can't be a people without a language. To share a language is to be a people. And this, if you remember the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel, is why the Tower of Babel happens. In that moment, all the people speak, we're told, are speaking the same language, and they're trying to be God. They're building this tower to try to reach God. And God says, ooh, this is not good. They're trying to become gods themselves. And so he causes them all to be able to speak or have to speak multiple languages so that they can no longer communicate in order to build this tower. And that's the story in the Old Testament of how the nations speak different languages. And all of a sudden, they have to scatter and so everybody who speaks the same language in that moment kind of becomes a nation, and they're all now separated nations. Language matters. There's a tendency when we read this story to think that this is the moment when God reverses the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, that's not exactly entirely true. In, in that, he doesn't make everyone speak the same language. Right? This isn't a moment where God says, okay, I'm going to undo the curse that was brought about at Babel. From this point on, people, even today, we speak different languages. And so God has not reversed the curse, but what God has done here is he transcends it. He sort of goes beyond it. He breaks through it with his power. It's made a moot point. How many of you have tried to learn a language before? <laughs> How many of you have succeeded very well? Right? This, learning language is a, dumb, is, is a difficult thing to do. I've, I've tried to learn three in my, in my life. In high school, it was Latin. College, I took Spanish. I didn't do, I'm a great student, but I did not do well in my language classes. Uh, and more recently, I've been learning Greek for this reason. Um, Greek, I've having the most success with. Any idea why? Well, it's a dead language. Well, the, the Greek that I'm learning to speak is a dead language, but so is Latin, and I didn't do very well with that one. I, 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 I'm having success with Greek because I care, right? I care about it. I want to learn because I want to be able to have those conversations about what, what did the Greek actually say because translation is necessarily interpretation. Like, I want to get back to what it actually said, and then we can have some intelligent discussions about how we interpret that, right? Um, but for me, like, care about that, and so I'm having better luck. Um, but as you're learning languages, if you remember that experience, or if you haven't done that, uh, the first thing you have to do is learn vocab and lots of rules. Right? You just learn what the words mean, and then how they fit together with sort of grammar rules. And it's very sort of mathematical in some way, uh, formulaic, certainly. And then once you've learned the vocab and some of the rules, you can begin to sit down and start to translate. You can speak really terribly, <laughs> right? You, you stumble through your words. 
um, as you try to speak this language, if it's a language that's spoken, and then you begin to interpret and translate, and you, you sort of start to master it. But then there's this sort of next level, and that's, because, that's the level of fluency. And I'm going to guess, given your response earlier, that no one here is fluent in a foreign language. Uh, I'd like to say I am, but I'm not. But I've seen people who are, and I've, I've sort of paid attention to who they are, and there were people that I knew in college that were majoring in a foreign language, uh, and it always struck me the way that just take Spanish, for example, someone who loved the language and was majoring in the language for, for a reason, they had a passion about it, which I did not. <laughs> um, and, and that's one of the reasons it was sort of difficult for me, but they loved the language, but as they became fluent, as, be, as they began to speak that language, they began to understand the people and the culture. And if you know someone who speaks a foreign language fluently, I guarantee you they love the people that speak it and the language and the culture that it comes from. There's just something about learning the language that allows you to identify with the people. You heard that, right? That allows you to identify with the people and connect with them. There's a guy on, he's got a YouTube channel and he speaks Chinese, he lives in New York and uh, he's just got these videos. He's, you know, he's American, but he studied in Beijing for like four years and he's fluent in Mandarin and he's learning some other uh, dialects of Chinese and he, he just does these videos where he goes in and he sort of surprises the Chinese restaurant workers with his Chinese. And that one, they're stunned, but then some, there's, I can't even remember, the, I couldn't even say the name of the language properly, but there's one regional dialect that many of the, those who have restaurants in Chinatown speak and it's rare. And he's taken it upon himself to try to learn that. And they're, they're absolutely stunned, they're shocked. They immediately, when he starts to speak that language, although he's not fluent yet, he sort of stumbles through it, they all turn, they're surprised, their jaws drop, their faces light up, and they all come forward to talk to him. Like, what, how is it that you know our language? How, how do you know this thing? Like, some of them said, like, our kids don't even know this language. Like, how is it that you know that? And there's this immediate connecting moment, this, this connection that they have with him because he can speak their language. In this, in this first century, there were many languages across the world, the known world, right? Think about all the, the empires that had come and gone. If you remember, we talked about Alexander the Great and the, the, Greek, or the Greek empire that he created left this Greek culture and left the Greek language. There's a reason when you pick up the New Testament in its original language, it's Greek. It's because of the influence of the Greek empire, even as Rome came, it wasn't Latin that became the language of the people, it stayed Greek. Even the Romans learned Greek. There was this common language. It's the reason that I said I'm learning Greek, right? Um, there's this version called Koine Greek uh, that's now not spoken, but that's what our texts are all written in. And they're all written in that. They even went back and translated the Old Testament into that language so that everyone could have a copy, those who could read at the time. And so that, that raises an immediate question here. In this time and place, as I said, there were probably thousands of different dialects and languages spoken throughout the known world. There was Greek, which everyone spoke. In this area, there was also Aramaic, which everyone would have known. If God wants to tell his story, he could tell it in Greek. He could tell it in Aramaic. Why did he choose to do this? Yeah, then he said he wants connection. Because to speak Greek is to speak sort of the national trade language. This is the language we all know so that we can go to the market and we can buy and sell things and we can go home to our people, but our people speak something else, right? This miracle of God is certainly about getting the word out, transferring the gospel, 
But the fact that they come and God compels them to speak their mother tongues, their native languages, is about God wanting to make a connection. To speak a language fluently is to speak a people. And God speaks people. God knows people. As God looks at this moment in Israel, God knows each and every one of them. He knows their stories. He knows where they come from. He knows their history. He knows what scares them. He knows what they're worried about. He knows what they delight in. And he chooses to speak to them in this very intimate way, which says, I know you. It's why this guy who speaks Chinese in in New York gets such a response, because to speak a language says, I care, certainly, I care enough to learn your language, to know your language, to learn about your culture, and to do it fluently, as we said, comes with it a love for the people. And, And certainly that's God. And so this miracle, this moment, which is, the first step in getting the gospel out, right? It's going to be important down the road that everybody knows Greek, of course, but also that the missionaries and the people who scatter be able to speak those languages. But this is the moment in the divine fantasy when God comes to join his people and he does so in a very intimate way that says, I know you. I want to come alongside you. I want to enter into your particular individual story. That's one of the beauties of sort of the truth of Christianity is many religions have a God, right? Who's sort of transcendent and big and powerful. We have a God who is that, but also imminent and intimate. And it comes to know us individually and be with us and indwell us, right? And live, live with us. This is God, like I said, joining his people. What is Acts about? If I asked you that at the beginning of, of our talk today, if I said, what's Acts about, what would you say? Sorry, I guess I speak louder. What the apostles and Paul did, right? That's what it's called, right? The Acts of the Apostles. It's interesting. That's probably not the proper name for it. Luke didn't name these, right? He just wrote a letter or a story, right? And we have since given them names. And Drew's absolutely right. That's the name that we've, every single Bible. In, in the original Greek, it's, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. The praxis of the apostles is the Greek word. But the truth of the matter is, it really isn't about what the apostles do, it's about what God does. It it has been said over and over, and it's probably more accurately named the Acts of the Spirit, right? And a lot of people will look at the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Spirit, this book, and say that the first portion of it is certainly about the early church in Jerusalem, and the second portion is about Paul. A lot of people, when you ask that question, they say, oh, Acts is about Paul and what Paul did. Um, And and I guess one of the points I want to make is that it's not about Paul. Paul's just actually the, the tool that the Spirit works through. Paul's actually the backdrop. Paul's the backdrop that, that the Spirit works on and through. The story is about what God does in the lives of his people as he expands his world, right? And what happens here, this sort of God joining and sort of taking over his people, compelling his people to speak in the way that we've talked about, gets replicated over and over through the story. So if, if I want to give you sort of the, one of the big ideas, it is, Pay attention to the way in which the Spirit causes and directs the action. When I was in college, uh, I joined a fraternity, and it was uh, a national fraternity that's been around for a long time, but at our, co- our college, it was new. And when uh, it, we had like this, this moment when it was called chartering, when you kind of become official, and we had this big banquet, and it was this big black tie affair, and obviously everybody that was you know, involved in the fraternity and all their dates went and people came in from all over the country from, from other chapters and the national organization came and it was just a big party, right? And my wife and I, uh, then girlfriend Joey, we were together at that point, 
we enjoyed dancing, so we got up on the floor and danced, and uh, she grew up as a dancer, and I had, in high school, for some, I don't know how, I happened to learn how to swing dance, right? And so, let's do that, let's have some fun. So we went over to the corner, and we were just having a good time. And all of a sudden, we looked up, and everybody had stopped dancing, <laughs> right? And it was staring, it was this like awkward, weird moment, right? But if you, if you dance more than just like going out and gyrating, like if you know how to dance or ballroom dance in any way, you know that it requires a partnership, of course. And typically it's the male, in that case me, right, leads, right? And so there's this, you know, swing dancing especially, like I got to kind of talk, you, know, you actually have to talk, right? I have to actually tell her what's coming and where she's going to do. And we had sort of like cues or whatever because we'd, we'd done it before, right? That sort of communicate, like, because I can't like throw her up in the air if I don't tell her first, right? That's not going to end well. Right, right. Uh, we don't need to make an ER visit tonight, right? So we were having this fun, and it's sort of this sort of like back and forth. There was a, a leading that happened, and what happens in Acts is very similar, right? This is God coming and leading this beautiful dance, and what happened in my experience was the floor got cleared. But that's what we see here too, right? Everybody stops over and over and over again. The Spirit comes and leads, leads people by the hand. Sometimes they cause a storm and ships get wrecked in the case of Paul. But over and over, you read Luke tell us that God is taking action to direct his missionaries. Paul and Barnabas and Saul and Luke is in that story. Mark is there. Um, all of these men in this case, but certainly there are women that haven't been included, right? God is dispersing them and directing their paths, taking them in places they don't want to go, that they didn't set out to go, meeting with people on mission with people that they don't necessarily always like. It's God taking the lead and it causes trouble, right? We looked a couple weeks ago about um, this moment and remember we talked about the Artemis cult when they go to Ephesus, Paul and his group are in Ephesus and they cause a riot. Everybody stopped, they cleared the dance floor for a moment and everybody stopped to pay attention to what was going on. And that, that is sort of the dance, if we can say, that's the dance that happens in Acts. It is God leading this action, leading his people to carry out his mission to spread the gospel, but to do so in a way that is deeply intimate, that matters. It is God joining his people, right? This is the culmination, the fruition of the promise that God has always been making that is in, on God's heart God created, I mean, go back to the Genesis story. God created a people to be with, to walk alongside. Last week, as we opened, we sang in the garden, right? This, this different, beautiful imagery of being in the garden, walking alongside God. Like, that's the plan. That was the point from the very beginning, right? And, and Acts is the story of how that happens. Acts is the story of God obliterating otherness. So all of these divisions that had been set up, whether it's socioeconomical, class, race, language, geography, access the story of the way that God transcends that, moves beyond that. He breaks boundaries along class, gender, race, ethnicity, and unites everyone in Jesus through the Spirit. The story of Acts is God breaking through all of those boundaries and barriers and segregating markers. God's saying there's no difference between white and black, men, female, Jew, Gentile, right? There's no difference in terms of value and the family of God, there's no difference. We're all the same. We're all people of God. And he does that in the, in the beginning here by learning to speak a language. And so in, we're going to close now, but two, two points to be made and taken from this. One, do you understand that God speaks your language? Whatever your story is, what your family history is, what your struggles is, what keeps you up at night, what scares you, what terrifies you, what excites you, what you love, what you hate. 
God knows it all. He speaks your language. He wants to have an intimate relationship. He wants to relate to you in that way. And the second is, if we're going to be the people of God, we must allow God to do this for us as well. We must sit in the room and wait. We must pray. We must expect that God will show up in our midst and will compel us to go out into the world and to go out into the world and speak the language of the other. We have to be willing and ready for God to say, okay, go out there to the people that aren't like you. Go to the place that you don't want to go. Again, that's the story of Acts. People going where they didn't want to go because God sent them there to speak that language, to speak to those people, to draw them into the family. That's our call. One, to recognize that God is doing that for us and that God is there for and in response. After that, then compelling us to go in that way for others. As you read Acts, and I encourage you to go back this week and read some of it, if not all of it, as, as time allows for you, have that in the back of your head. It's the story of God coming. It's the story of God joining his people. It is the story of a loving, intimate God who profoundly and deeply knows us and wants to be with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, as we always do, your sacrifice, as we always do, that has allowed us to be in communion with you. And Lord, today, as we read your story of Pentecost, we recognize that the larger purpose of your coming, the larger purpose of that reconciliation is so that your dream, your fantasy, and ours as well, of you living with us may be made real. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and allow the weight of that reality to rest on us today, that we might accept your gift, we might accept your presence, your spirit, your healing and your reconciliation, your comfort, and that we might be compelled in response to deliver that to others. It is in your son's name and in the power of this very spirit. Amen.